I'm going to be reading from Mark 5 this morning, verses 1 through 20. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and can no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us to those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everybody was amazed at what he told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's wonderful to start another year with y'all, worshiping our Lord together on this first Sabbath day of 2020. Would you please join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to open God's Word? Father, we do thank you for your mercies and your faithfulness in the previous year. And as David said, we look to the coming year in full faith and assurance that you are the God whose loving kindness is forever, whose faithfulness never fails. And even when we deny you, you do not deny us because you can't deny yourself. So we thank you that our relationship with you is firmly established in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, sealed by the Spirit, and is in no way dependent upon ourselves. Because, Lord, we are weak and frail. We are fearful and faltering. And we deny you in various ways every day. <clears throat> and so we thank you for the assurance of our adoption and of your commitment to us. And if we ever doubt that and waver in that, we have only to recall the cross because there you demonstrated your love for sinners and that while we were yet enemies, your son died for us. So Father, we do thank you that you are indeed mighty to save over all of our enemies, over all of our addictions, Lord, over all the things that put us in bondage and bring torment to ourselves and others. We thank you for Christ, the great liberator, who came to set the captives free. 
And we look forward to being reminded of that this morning when you're inspired and you're at work. So open our hearts and minds to understand, appreciate, and apply the truth that you've revealed for us this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of us grew up on fairy tales, and we were probably familiar with Sleeping Beauty and Snow White before we knew of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, we knew of Little Red Riding, Riding Hood and Hansel and Gretel before we likely knew of Abram and Moses. But increasingly, the fairy tales have come under critique as being too violent and frightening for children that we shouldn't introduce children to these type of monsters and villains. We need to protect them. And G.K. Chesterton, I thought, had a wise response to this in an essay called The Red Angel. He said, Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. They know that already because it's in the world already. Fairy tales don't give children the first idea of the boogeyman. What fairy tales give the child is the first idea that the boogeyman can be defeated. The baby knows of the dragon and the demon under the bed and in the closet. But what fairy tales give him is the knight in shining armor that can deliver him and vanquish the enemies. What the fairy tale does is this. It accustoms him through a series of pictures to the idea that these limitless terrors have limits. That these shapeless enemies have enemies of their own in the nights of God. And that there is something in the universe more mystical than darkness and stronger than fear. In other words, what fairy tales do for children isn't introducing to the idea of villains, but that villains can be conquered. It doesn't introduce to them the idea that bad people can take children captured, but good people can deliver captured children. So they interest to the idea of the good and the noble can defeat the bad and the wicked. But of course, those are fairy tales. What the Gospels give us isn't stories and myths and legends, but facts and histories and true accounts of a God who sent His Son, who is our champion, who is able to set the captives free, who is able to conquer any enemy, to deliver any captive, and ultimately will prevail. And that's our account today. Three weeks ago, uh, David talked us through Jesus' uh, calming of the storms. That in this life, we know that storms occur. What we needed to learn was there were some who could calm the storms of someone who was Lord over the winds and the waves. And today what we're going to see, not something that we didn't know that the world is filled with villains and wicked people, but of a Savior who is powerful enough and good enough to come and deliver those who are taken bondage by the evil. So open, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, where we are going to be reminded of the character and the power of our champion, Jesus Christ our Lord. The first 20 verses are going to fall into three main sections. We're going to get a setting in the first five verses, a confrontation, and then two diametrically opposite responses to what occurs. The setting begins, They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Now, if you'll remember, Jesus had spent a full day teaching parables from a boat because the crowds were so pressed into the shore. And then the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4 says, When evening came, they set out on the sea, a journey that typically would have taken two hours, but in a storm likely could have been five or six. And there the storm came, Jesus calmed the way. So it has been an exhausting day. It has been an eventful night. And they're arriving on shore, likely somewhere in the early morning hours. And the other side of the shore is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. I think we have a map of it. So if you have eyes under 40, you can see that that's Capernaum to the north. 
And if you can see a vague blur <laughs> over to their uh, eastern side, it's in this region that he's crossed over. The main thing to understand from the uh, narrative perspective is that this is Gentile territory. We are leaving Israel and we are crossing into an area known as Decapolis, uh, named after 10 free Greek cities that were an alliance before the Romans conquered them. But Jesus' power isn't limited to Israel. Like the God of the Hebrews was only mighty over the Hebrews. Nor is his compassion limited to the Jews, as though he didn't care for the Gentiles as well. He is going into a very hostile environment, a foreign environment, with his apostles after an exhausting day, an invitable night, because he has work to do among the Gentiles. And one interesting archaeological phenomena. Jeremy, I think we have a picture. So this is a, a picture of the coastline. You can envision the sharp bank that the 2000 swine would have uh, run down to in a really bad pastor's pun. One commentator called that the first case of suicide. But I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. We do have, though, in 1986, a drought uncovered a first century fishing vessel in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we didn't have Peter's names, you know, initials inscribed in the wood. This isn't the Jesus boat, but it's called by archaeologists the Jesus boat because it is indicative of the type of vessels that fishermen would have used on the Sea of Galilee around this time. It's 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and so it would have been a vessel like this that they made their crossing in. And I show these to remind us that this is history. This is geography. This is archaeology. These aren't myths and legends and fairy tales. These are places and occasions and dates and, and historical people. This happened which gives us not just an inspiring myth, but hope based on what God did in time and space. So having come to the other side, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now the text goes into great detail about this person because this was a vivid memory in Peter's mind. Remember, Mark was a spiritual child of Peter. Peter had called him to Rome. And Mark is taking notes or recording what Peter had relayed to him. Peter was there on that night when he was there, when the storm was calm. Then they got to the other side. And as soon as the boat lands, a man comes rushing down to them and were given a very vivid description of him. First of all, that he had an unclean spirit. Now, unclean for a Jew meant ceremonially unclean unfit to approach God or have anything to do with sacred things of God. This was an unclean Gentile in an unclean region filled with unclean spirits. He's going to live in an unclean place among the tombs, and eventually the spirits are going to go into unclean animals, the swine. So Christ is coming as the Holy One of God into this region of uncleanliness at every level. Secondly, we're told that He dwelt among the tombs. So in the ancient world at this time, the limestone cliffs would have had caves, and in these caves they would have carved out ledges. And again, in this same region, we've discovered tombs in the caves, some as, uh, as deep as 20 feet, where you would take your deceased and not dig them into the ground in humation, but you would place them in these limestone cliffs that had been carved out as a softer stone. And some people could take shelter in these cliffs and this tombstone, these caves filled with dead people, 
was the residence of this person, living among the dead, dwelling among a cemetery. And no one was able to bind him anymore. So this is someone who, one, needed to be bound. The Gospel of Matthew in the parallel account said that he was such a terror and so violent that people had to avoid the whole region. And so in response, they didn't just banish him out to the caves where he's living in isolation. They would go there and try to hold him down and bind him in chains. And he would break the chains. So then they added shackles, which means fetters for his legs. So they would bind him in not just ropes, but metal chains, hand and foot. In fact, it says later on that they often had to do this. Until finally he had grown so strong that they couldn't bind him anymore. Uh, several years ago, we took the kids to see some friends at a local strongman ministry called The Power Team. And if you've ever seen this on television or live, and these people rip phone books, and one of them came over for lunch to the house, and he ripped our phone book in two and gave it to the kids. So we just saw this great feat of strength of this incredibly powerful man that could blow up water bottles and do these amazing feats. But it wasn't anything like this. It wasn't supernatural strength. We get a good picture in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus of these people who were going out and casting out evil spirits in the name of Jesus. And in this, uh, about verse 13, it says that seven sons of a priest named Sceva tried to cast out a demon in Jesus' name. And the demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but I don't know who you are. And this one demon-possessed person beat down and stripped and sent out seven grown men. And so this is a supernaturally, diabolically, demonically powerful person who is dangerous, a threat to himself and others. And he's tormented. Look at verse 5. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains. Uh, this wasn't just something that when the full moon came, the fit came upon him. This wasn't just someone that was sane in the daylight, but in the darkness hours, the vampire came out. The text goes to just describe the, the torment of this person and, and the terror of the community around him. Constantly, night and day, screaming in the tombs and roaming around the mountains. A terror to himself, a torment to others. So much so that he didn't just terrorize people who came into his region, but look at verse 5. It says again, he was gashing himself with stones. He would take sharp rocks and cut himself trying to end his own life because he was in anguish. He was in torment. It was a miserable, terrible, terrifying existence. And Jesus pulls up with his boat and his fishermen friends and immediately this is the person that comes running towards them. And you can imagine this naked man with his wild, dissembled, disheveled hair rushing down upon them. And it says in verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. He didn't attack them. He didn't assault them. He didn't stand at a distance and throw rocks at them. He came down and bowed before this carpenter's son. And having prostrated himself, he shouted with a loud voice, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of God, the Most High. He knows Jesus' name, even though they've never met. All the demons knew Jesus when he shows up at the synagogue or anywhere else. 
Demons have orthodox theology. They know exactly who Jesus is, better than we do in some ways. They knew exactly who God was, but they don't worship Him and honor the way we do. They knew that he, they knew God, that he was the most high God. And it's interesting, this is a phrase used in the Old Testament. When Gentiles refer to Yahweh, they often use the phrase the most high God. Or like in the book of Daniel, when Israel is in a Gentile setting, they talk of the most high God. So this is an appropriate name of God and that he is his son, he is his Messiah. And to say, what do we have to do to each other? That's a Hebrew idiom that literally says, what to me and to you? What do we have in common? More, more loosely, leave me alone. There's nothing in common between us. There's nothing that we have to do business with each other. Leave me alone. He doesn't demand. He doesn't threaten. He begs. He implores you, not by the threat of his master, Satan, but by Jesus' Father, God. I implore you by God, do not torment me. Because the demon recognized that Jesus had authority over him. And that there is coming a day when Jesus will judge the fallen angels and they will be cast into the lake of fire forever and forever. Again, when we imagine Jesus, oftentimes we picture him hanging on a cross, but he's not hanging on a cross anymore. Or we picture him in a manger scene, but he's not a babe in a manger. He's not a perpetual baby in mother's arm, in Mary's arms. He's not even the smiling fisherman telling parables to the children. That's not Jesus' true identity. If you want to imagine Jesus as he is now and as he's returning, turn to the beginning chapters of Revelation where he's there with the glory of God shining out like the sun and his voice sounding like a waterfall in all of his omnipotence and all of his grandeur and all of his glory and all of his might. And when he returns, it's going to come on a horse with the sword coming out of his mouth to judge the wicked, including the fallen angels. And the demon recognizes this and says, don't torment me. And interesting that he who had no mercy to torment this poor man didn't want to be tormented in turn and begs him on the basis of God, don't torment me. And something else that's kind of unnerving when you look at it more closely is the alternation between the first person singular or the singular uh, number and the plural. So sometimes it says, he said, or me, but then other time it talks about we are. And we're going to see this alternation in the text between the demon speaking through the man, sometimes of him, sometimes of them, sometimes through him, sometimes directly from them. This is a terrible, terrible, tragic case that this man has fallen into. And the reason that the demons are begging this is because Jesus has been saying to them, Come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Jesus doesn't just make the sign of a cross and drive the vampire away. He doesn't merely subdue him to show the fisherman how strong he is. He doesn't even just snap his fingers and slay him because this wicked person is coming maybe to assault them. Jesus is powerful not just enough to withstand him and subdue him and to bind him up again, but to deliver him and to order the demons to go where he tells them to go, and to transform this person, which is his intent. And he asked the demon, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's a terrifying sentence. A legion is a military term, literally meaning thousands. It would have been a Roman unit of anywhere from three to 6,000 footmen, 
along with some accompanying cavalrymen. This person isn't just plagued by a demon, but a host of demons, a troop of demons, a legion of demons is inside this poor man. And up to now, we've seen Jesus withstand the subtlety of Satan's temptations. We've seen him cast out a demon possessing a person in a synagogue. But now we have thousands of demons bound up in this man's body. And they've got Jesus and the fishermen outnumbered. They've got a whole military unit of devils here facing Christ. And it doesn't matter. Because Jesus is mightier than that. Jesus is stronger than our enemy. It's like he said in Mark 3 that he came to bind the strong man so that he could plunder his house. C.S. Lewis said, don't ever compare God and the devil as those are two forces of good and evil. The devil's just an angel. If you want a counterpart for devil, it's Michael the archangel or Gabriel. It's not God. God has no competitors. God has no threats. There's no one who challenges him. And when you get to the final battle of Armageddon and the whole might of Satan and all the wicked people that are in his things, it's not this great epic battle. It's anticlimactic. The angel goes, picks him up, casts him into the lake, and it's done. There's no question that whatever force of evil or wickedness has us threatened or captive, that God is mightier. The contest is settled. It's never a threat. It's never a challenge. And now, he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there's some speculation as to why this is. Uh, some believe the demons had kind of localities. They had a territory, almost like a poltergeist or a ghost in a particular place or home, and they just needed to stay in that region. Uh, others that if they left there, that they would go into the abyss and their torment would begin immediately. Or that they were still looking for a way to be a plague on the countryside, and maybe that's why they asked to go into the swine, is that they found another host that could still work their wickedness. Or that maybe they just didn't want to be cast out as failures and have to go answer to Satan because the demons aren't kind to one another. But for whatever reason, they implored Jesus to send them into a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. Now a typical herd at this time would have been about 150 pigs. The fact that this is going to be 2,000 says this is a very, very large herd of pigs. Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So again, picture that bank that we saw in the photo, of the swine grazing up on the top, and then when the demons enter into them, maddened, they rush down into the sea. Now, why did Jesus allow the demons to get the request? Again, we're not told in the text, but there's some good speculations as to why this might be. One is to give a visual demonstration that this man was indeed demonized and not just insane. This wasn't just a madman who had mad strength. No, this person was possessed. Secondly, to show the extent of his possession. Uh, to see 2,000 animals immediately maddened showed that there was not just one demon, but many among them. And secondly, or thirdly, their destructive tendency that Satan desires to destroy. Jesus says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That a lot of times when you look at books and film, 
Satan is presented as this suave, debonair character. So we were looking for something on Netflix, and I saw a TV show called Lucifer. Didn't watch it, but just looking at the handsome fellow on the front, they're sophisticated. Uh, one of the critiques of Milton's book, Paradise Lost, was Satan was presented as almost heroic, that he would rather rule in hell than kneel in heaven. And he's this heroic figure. Or if you look at various accounts in film and book where people make deals with the devil, and that's always a bad deal. Because the devil only desires to steal and kill and destroy. Just like he did the swine. Just like he was going to do with them. But that Jesus is more powerful than that. And Jesus is able to cleanse us of whatever demon and however many demons may be inhabiting our life and our world. Christ is mightier. At this time, the herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. So all they see, they don't hear the dialogue. They don't see probably even Christ down with the boat. They're up on top. All of a sudden that their charge goes charging down the cliff and now their responsibility is drowned. They go back to report what happened. It wasn't us. We weren't negligent. And the city and the countryside come to see what happened. And they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed. And look at the transformation that's occurred. Sitting down. He's no longer raving. He's no longer raging. He's sitting quiet and at peace, attentive in the posture of a disciple. He was clothed. Uh, It wasn't like he had his spare clothes up in the cave, so he's likely wearing an extra set of fisherman garment from one of the apostles. But he's no longer naked. He's He's beginning to be civilized because he's in his right mind. The insanity is gone because the demons are gone. For the first time in who knows how long, his mind is calm and right. Remember when the prodigal son went away and he squandered all of his dad's possessions with this sin and that debauchery. And then the phrase came as he was eating among the swine when he came to his senses. That there's a madness to sin of people who put themselves in bondage to some addiction, to some affliction, and they've lost their mind. Uh, We have certain family members that we're praying for right now. They said, God, let them come to their senses. We know people that are doing terrible things. We're saying, God, let them come to their right senses because it's madness what they're doing. Even if all they were was selfishly trying to get good things for them, no one could do more harm to the life than they're doing right now. And Christ did it. He's in His right mind. And their response was, they became frightened. They were more frightened of the sane man than of the terror because there is something stronger than the demon-possessed man now. Remember when Jesus calmed the winds and the waves? They were scared, But then Jesus calms the storm and they were very afraid because the storm was scary. But here in the boat is someone that's stronger than the storm. The possessed man was frightening, but here's someone who's stronger than a legion of demons. And they're unnerved by that. They're frightened by that. And they began imploring him to leave their region. Isn't that sad? Here's the one that did what none of them could do who wasn't merely able to subdue the person so he wasn't a threat to the children and the townspeople anymore, but was able actually to cure him and to set his mind right. 
And rather than saying, stay here and protect us. Stay here and heal us too. Stay here and transform us. They implore him to leave them. Jesus was bad for business. You know what? This one human being got right, but we lost 2,000 pigs. And who knows what you'll do next. So would you leave us? Maybe it was Gentiles wanted nothing to do with the Jewish prophet. Maybe it was just this unnerving sense of there's a power among us that we can't control. And maybe even a suspicion that he would want to make changes in their life as well. But here's one of these great tragedies of Christ among them. The first time he leaves the area to go and to preach among the Gentiles, and their response is, would you leave us please now? And remarkably, Jesus does. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him. Notice all the imploring going on. The demons are imploring. The man is imploring. The townspeople are imploring. Now the freed man is imploring. You don't demand things of Jesus. You beg him. Let me go with you. They don't want you, but I do. Take me with you. And Jesus did not let him, but said to him, don't come with me to my home. You go to your home, to your people, and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he had mercy to you. He's got a mission for this Gentile convert. And all the man has is a testimony. He didn't know his Old Testament. He didn't spend time walking with Jesus to be able to attend his messages and his sermons. But what he knew was, I was captive to evil. And this man was strong enough to liberate me. And not only was he strong enough, but he was merciful enough. That I didn't deserve it, but he showed compassion to me. In other words, I have a testimony of God's might and his mercy in my life. And that was enough. Because he went not just back to his hometown, but to the whole region. He became a traveling evangelist about all the great things. And don't miss this. Jesus said, go report to them the great things who has done the Lord. And he goes and tells them what? What great things Jesus has done. Because Jesus is the Lord. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. With the almighty power of God and the compassion and the mercy of a God who is love. And they were amazed. There's several things that we see in this beautiful, powerful, disturbing text. First of all, is the power and the wickedness of the devil. C.S. Lewis said that there are two equal and opposite errors that people often fall into when it comes to spiritual warfare or demons. One is that there's a demon behind every headache and every traffic jam. That the demon of traffic caught me up once again, and we can lean that way where there's, the devil made me do it, we may have said as a kid even. And, and that's an extreme. But the other is to deny his existence altogether. And again, we have it on good testimony and some on experience that there is a spiritual realm behind the physical realm and there are fallen angels as well as holy angels and these unclean spirits can afflict us. And at times, they try to woo and deceive us. The Bible says that Satan could even appear as an angel of light. But he only and always intends us harm. He only and always hates 
and seeks to destroy. He is ever and always spiteful. Um, there are foolish people who are intrigued by or play with the demonic and the diabolical, and it is only destructive of evil. We are to be very wary of it because the devil only means us harm. He never means us good. Secondly, is how terrible it is to be under the devil's sway. And the Bible says that in some sense, all of us are under his influence and power until we're saved. Christ would say to the, Gen to the Jews even that you're children of the devil because you're under his influence, you're under his sway and authority, and that's a terrible place to be. And many of the reasons we see the amount of affliction in this world and the wickedness and the evil and certain acts and deeds of depravity that are so despicable, it's wonder, how could this be? How could something this terrible actually happen? Well, there are demons fomenting that and causing that to happen. And it's a terrible thing to be afflicted under various addictions and captivities and ways that the devil binds us to himself. The thirdly, and here's the main point of the passage, the power and compassion of Christ to deliver us from whoever has us captive. Christ is God. He is almighty. He is the creator and sovereign Lord of all. And there is no captor so powerful that he can't deliver us from. There is no evil so terrible that he can't conquer. Christ is the only one able to defeat the devil, and he did so. And the only hope that we have against our sin and death and evil is Jesus Christ. But he is both powerful enough to deliver us, and he's good enough to deliver us. Jesus is there as the Jewish Messiah in Israel. He teaches all day. Then at night he crosses the lake. He calms a storm. He goes into the territory. He has a confrontation with a legion of demons. And then immediately he gets back in the boat across to the other side. And what did he accomplish for all of that hard night's labor? He freed one person. And that was enough. One tormented person was enough for him to go and to confront and deliver because God loves each one of us and his son came and died for each one of us and one is enough. And Jesus did that for this Gentile who didn't know Yahweh, who didn't know the Holy Book, who wasn't going to be a faithful Jew afterwards, but Jesus did that for him and he was loving enough to do that because some people have the power, but they don't have the compassion, Right? They can free, but they don't. They can intervene, but they don't. And so we get these appeals of children are starving, would you help? Babies are being murdered, will you help? All these terrible things are being done, will you intervene? And people with the power and the means to intervene don't because they can't be troubled by it. But that's not our God. He's compassionate and loving and willing to free anyone, willing to receive anyone who receives him. And then again, that he's powerful enough to do that. Because some people have the soft heart and the mercy and the compassion, but they feel helpless and powerless to do anything about it. Uh, I shared a story earlier in the spring about a friend of mine who um, somehow fell. He, he knew a gentleman who was condemned to life in prison for murder. And they had an earlier acquaintance. Then he found out about this person's act and then his sentence. And he was sentenced to a prison. So he struck up a correspondence with him, hoping to lead him to the Lord. And then when he had some vacation time, he called the prison saying, I would like to visit this prisoner. What airport do I fly into? And the prison said, you can't get there from here. Or you can't get here from there. 
that we're in the middle of nowhere, there is no good airport, there's no way to come see this person. And so he chartered a private plane and chartered a private pilot to fly him out to this obscure airfield, hired a driver to be there, to drive him from the airfield, to bring him to the prison, to be able to share the gospel with this person, and then turn around and reverse the whole process. The heart was there to help just one person in a dire place. But he couldn't open his eyes to believe the gospel, to be aware of his own sin and need. The heart was there, but not the power, but our God combines both. Another teaching of this text is be wise in how we respond to Christ. The townspeople saw what he did. They had the evidence of his power and his mercy. And what did they do? They begged him to get out of there because Jesus would have been bad for business. Maybe the Jew wouldn't want us in the swine business anymore. Maybe he would have made us give up our occupation and find another trade. Or we wouldn't be able to control him and make him do our bidding. Or he may just not want to free us and help us. He might actually expect us to change our life. And they begged him to leave. And some people do that with Christ. They hear the gospel. They believe that there's a God. They believe even that Jesus is the Son of God. But the reality is they don't want to give up control of their life because Jesus might make them give up something that they're indulging in or might ask them to do something that would be convenient and they would rather say, you know what, just go away. I don't need you that bad. I'm not ready for you yet. Maybe I'll come and rub the lamp and have you come at a later date, but not now. Uh, the St. Augustine, who had an illegitimate child at the age of 17, had fallen into sexual immorality at a young age, said, I used to pray when I began to believe in God, God, deliver me, deliver me, but not yet because I wasn't done sinning yet. There were more sins I wanted to commit. There were more things that I wanted to indulge. I wasn't ready to live a saintly life yet. And so he sent God away for a season. Better to be like even the demoniac and to fall at our knees before Christ and to say, deliver me, save me, help me, heal me, transform me, put me in my right rind, and he will. Because there is none so afflicted that Jesus can't deliver and none so wicked that Jesus won't have compassion on them. All we have to do is receive him and accept him and he receives and accepts us and he transforms us. That's our God. That's our Savior. Next, this text shows us the power of a testimony to transform lives. Uh, on Thursday night, the Bates are going to give us their testimony. Prior to that, especially in our first months as a church, we had people every week giving their testimonies as a way of praising God because this is how the Savior of the world became my Savior. This is how the Good Shepherd came and found this sheep and how He delivered me out of the hole that I had put myself in. And that's all we need to be able to share the Gospel with another person. You don't need to master books of apologetics. You don't have to have an answer for every question. All you have to do is have to be able to tell another person I was here and then I met Jesus and he brought me here and he could do the same for you. That's enough. People will do crazy things on the power of a personal testimony. Uh, Sam was telling me that I'm taking the wrong form of magnesium powder, so I'm going to ingest new substances simply because Sam is going to tell me to. I trust him. Uh, other people will choose honeymoon spots, vacation spots, or because someone sold a good thing about the Seychelles or somewhere. 
if you can just tell someone genuinely, this is where I was, and then I met Jesus, and this is what he did for me, and he could do the same for you, that's enough for a ministry. That's enough for an evangelistic presentation. And we're intended to go out and to share that story with others of what God has done for us. C.S. Lewis, when he grew up, he lost his faith while in middle school and flirted with spiritualism and then fell into a hardened atheism. And this is Lewis's description of himself as a non-believer. I was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. So this is Lewis's description of himself as a non-believer who hated God. In one place he says, I hated God for not existing. He says, I didn't believe that God exists and I hated him for not existing. <laughs> but then, in September of 1931, he took a walk with J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and a man by the name of Hugo Dyson, another professor at Oxford. And they began talking to him saying, you love myths. You love the idea of accounts of God sacrificing themselves and rising again. You love the account of Odin hanging on a tree and then coming back to life. Why don't you love it in the Gospels? The Gospels are a true myth in the sense that they have the power on us that a myth does to capture big categories and principles and truths in these stories, but the difference is they're true. And that helped lead to his belief in God. And he later said this, the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference. It really happened. And he gave his life first to God and then later came to accept Christ. And he became the great apologist of the 20th century. This is not a myth. This happened. There really is a God who loved us so much that he made this universe so that it could be a habitat for men and women made in his image so that we can enjoy a personal relationship with him. But first an angel and then people rebelled against God because we would rather pursue our kingdom than his. That we wanted our will done, not his. And because we would rather promote our name, not his. And that put us into a terrible estate where we were a danger to ourselves and others where we were our own worst enemies, but that didn't mean that we weren't enemies of others as well. And we were in the power of wickedness and could do nothing about it. But God so loved us that he sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on human nature so that as our representative, he could live a perfect life and fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law so that all of that merit could be transferred to our account. And he hung on a cross and took all of our sins upon himself so that he could pay the penalty for sin, which was death. And rising from the grave showed that God has accepted that sacrifice. And now any person, no matter if we're filled with a legion of demons, can be delivered and healed and made sane and in our right minds and be transformed and become an evangelist of the gospel, telling others how they can have the same transformation in their life. If we will simply, like this person, come to Christ and bow down before him and then plead with him, take me with you. Heal me, transform me, and he will. If there is anyone here who has not done that, then I would appeal to you to make that decision today. 
while there is still time, while there is still life, admit that you need Jesus and accept him as your Savior and let him begin to transform your life because he will. And for those of us who have experienced this, to go forth emboldened, to go forth encouraged, to share that testimony, that story of transformation with others, to be willing to stand up undaunted against evil, because our God is mighty to save, and He is able to deliver and loving to do so. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank You for this history, not a fable, not a legend, not a myth, but this account written by the scribe of an eyewitness of the power of Jesus to calm a storm, to encourage us in the midst of life storms, and of the power of Jesus to defeat the demons, to give us confidence in the face of, e of evil in this world. Father, we do thank you for his victory over Satan, over death, over sin. We thank you for the promise of his return when there will be a final separation of the righteous and the unrighteous, and we will not be plagued by those things anymore. And until that day, would we go forth boldly in the confidence of his power, in the faith in his love, to share the story of the one who delivered us, who set us free, who put us in our right minds, and will do the same for anyone if they'll but ask. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.